in preparing the sermon this week, I was thinking a lot about our last two meals together. I guess the two before this one that we shared together this morning. And so let me slip in a little announcement there for you. If you weren't here at 9 this morning, uh, come next week at 9 for Trinity Together. Uh, it's a, a little five-week thing that we're doing where we're going to eat breakfast together and uh, spend some time in prayer uh, and spend some time in God's uh, Word. And so you're welcome to come for that uh, next week for the following uh, four weeks. But I was thinking about our last two meals that we had together, the one uh, last Sunday at lunchtime and the communion meal that we shared together a few weeks back. And in helping to prepare those meals, I was sweating bullets. Uh, I was in the back of the serving line each time, literally praying for a loaves and fishes kind of miracle. And uh, I remember for the communion meal being down the hallway, and I knew the serving table was right there when you turned the corner, and I just couldn't bear to look around the, the corner. I just knew there couldn't possibly be enough roast beef left. Um, amazingly, there was. I thought that I'd prepared enough. Uh, but we had great turnout, and apparently some of you guys were pretty hungry. And, uh, and so we just barely had enough food for a good meal. And that's what I was a little concerned about this week, studying this passage. Uh, knowing that it is uh, like an, an introductory sermon to kind of get us into this series, and we're only going to cover a couple of verses, my, my running prayer this week was, oh Lord, is, is there going to be enough? Are we going to have enough for a, for a good meal. And so the further I got into the week, the more and more pleasantly surprised I was at, at the depth. And I really think the richness of God's Word, even in just these first few verses, even in just getting into this sermon series. Um, so we're going to begin to work our way through Paul's first letter to Timothy. Uh, and I've, I've given the series a title, Church Matters, or Church Matters, or Church matters. We'll have to decide as we go along what it actually is. But I think that God's message through Paul's words to Timothy uh, are very appropriate for Trinity Church right now uh, in this season where we, where we find ourselves in, uh, in this period of transition, uh, in seeking the Lord's will for uh, our next pastor. We will soon be nominating and electing officers to begin serving in the following year. There's lots that this, uh, this letter addresses that we could benefit from. Realizing all the while that what we do as a church matters and, and how we do it matters. Um, so I'm not sure how familiar you are with 1 Timothy, uh, but here's some of the things, uh, I've got a list of some of the things that, that we'll cover in the coming weeks in this, in this letter. Um, the gospel, first and foremost, and specifically the true gospel as opposed to false teaching. And, and when we are embracing the true gospel, it always leads to life transformation. Always. For those who believe the gospel, their lives are and will be changing. So we're going to talk about that a lot. Um, we're going to talk about worldwide evangelization. Um, the church's essential participation in that. And if the church is to be the church, she is proclaiming the good news for all to hear. We're going to talk about public worship and what do we do there and why is that important. We're going to talk about leadership in the church. Uh, we're going to talk about 
some moral instruction and, and some, some personal and practical godliness, which isn't a natural outflow of the gospel, right? The gospel is changing us, and it, and it shows up in our, in our lives and in our behavior. We're going to talk about social responsibility. What do, we, what do we do with our widows? How do we respect and honor and treat our elders? Um, what do we do with slavery? Right? And, and so trying to wrap our heads around what it meant in the first century, and then what do we do with that today? And we'll talk about stewardship. We'll talk about our material possessions. We'll talk about materialism. Uh, so very, very practical. This letter is chock full of stuff that we're going to benefit from, I have no doubt. And so in just a few moments, I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of Scripture. Um, but I want to say a few words about that first. Um, this will be my habit uh, for as long as I have the privilege of regularly bringing God's Word to you. Um, but there's nothing magic about it, right? I just want to say there's nothing magic about it. Um, it's not commanded or required in Scripture, though there is scriptural precedent for it. It's just simply a way to engage the whole person. Not just our, our heart and our mind, but the whole person, our body as well, in demonstrating reverence for God's Word, in, in confessing Scripture's importance and its authority. Uh, and so we're going to stand because they're the very words of God and we need to hear them. So if you're able, please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions." desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. May God bless the hearing and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Now let's pray together to God for our help. Oh God, we do need your help. If we are to understand your word, if you are to bring its transforming power to bear in our lives if we are to understand what we are to do with this we need your help and so we ask for it and we expect it so that you'll be glorified and that Christ Jesus will be exalted we pray in his name and for his sake amen So here's what I'd like to do this morning. Uh, we read the first seven verses to give you a little context into what's going on, but we're really just going to focus on the first two or three to lay the foundation for this series. And so I want to do three things, and you've got an outline in your uh, worship folder if that's helpful. Uh, the first is just to give you a few words about the cast of characters, the setting, what's going on here, why is this letter written. Uh, the second thing would be to dig a little bit deeper and to talk about our Savior, 
And then finally, uh, deeper still, uh, about the very foundation of this letter and of the church, of our, indeed of our very lives, and that is the gospel. So let's begin first with Paul, who is our author, who wrote this letter. He opens uh, with the claim that he does in most of his letters that he's an apostle which is a title reserved for those who who actually saw and witnessed the resurrected Christ. Uh, And so if you know Paul's story, you know his witnessing of the resurrected Christ came a little bit later than the rest of the apostles. His came on the Damascus Road. And Paul is reminding folks that he's an apostle because he needs to exert some authority. Because as he's very often doing when he's writing these letters, he's writing because he needs to correct, he needs to instruct, sometimes he needs to rebuke, sometimes he's got difficult things to say. And when he says them, he doesn't say them on his own authority, but on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's Paul. And Paul is writing now to Timothy. And so who is Timothy? Uh, Paul says, he's my true child in the faith. There's a lot wrapped up in here. And so um, it's quite possible that Timothy was one of Paul's uh, converts on his first missionary journey. Um, We know for certain that it was on the second missionary journey that Paul called Timothy and said, hey, you got to come join me and travel with me uh, and let's minister uh, for the Lord Jesus uh, together. And and so Paul calls him his, his true child or his genuine child. And so obviously there's a spiritual component to this. He's spiritual offspring. He, he led him to the Lord. He shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him and saw uh, his conversion and saw his growth in the gospel and his maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's probably also an allusion here to, to Timothy's actual physical heritage. Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, you're my genuine son in the faith. Um, And this may have been just a little boost for Timothy, uh, a little encouragement to him, because Timothy, unfortunately, was seen as an illegitimate child in the Jewish community and in their eyes, because his mother was a Jew, but his father was not. His father was a Gentile. Uh, And so in their eyes, he was illegitimate. And so perhaps this is just a little reminder slipped in by Paul to encourage him, saying, hey, buddy, there's, there's nothing illegitimate about you at all. You are the real deal. Uh, in my eyes. Um, And so I'm not sure what your impression is necessarily of Timothy, but but I tend to think about two things, and I think a majority of us maybe remember two things about Timothy, and maybe two things only, maybe that he was timid, and that Paul had to encourage him, all right, don't let him look down on you because you're young, right, you're familiar with this verse probably, Um, and the other one is his infirmity, right, hey, Timothy, don't drink only water, you got to drink a little wine to help with your stomach, right, uh, so, so maybe he was a little timid, and he did have this physical infirmity that bothered him. But for some reason, it's those two things that stick in our mind, and we kind of forget all this other great stuff that we read about Timothy in Acts and in Paul's other letters. Um, this guy was a stud, actually. Um, so Paul leaves Silas and, and Timothy together in Berea after Paul gets chased out. Right, so there's a pretty tough situation. Um, he sends Timothy to Thessalonica to, to instruct the brothers there. He, li- he leaves Silas and, Cor- and, uh, and Timothy together in Corinth for a year and a half. If you know anything about 
the church at Corinth, that was a difficult situation too. So just time after time, um, Paul is placing a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. And now as we see from verse 3, uh, Paul's given Timothy the charge to, to stay in Ephesus, right? I've got to go elsewhere, but you stay here and you've got to charge some certain persons who have abandoned the gospel and are teaching something else. You've got to deal with them, all right? So, uh, so I don't think Timothy's a, a shrinking violet after all. He seems to be quite capable. Um, when Paul, in fact, is writing to the Philippian church. He's got a lot to say about Timothy. I think we've got this on the screen for you in, in Philippians chapter 2. Um, he's writing and he says, I, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And so Paul has left his trusted ministry partner, his true child in the faith, in Ephesus. So what's going on in Ephesus? All right, uh, We've alluded to it already. You've seen it for a little bit from these first few verses. Uh, we've got some false teachers here that have crept into the leadership. And, and they're turning folks away from the gospel to some silly stuff. And so obviously Paul is deeply concerned about this. And this is why Timothy has to remain. Um, and so I need you to see right from the beginning the dual nature of this letter. So it's a letter to Timothy, right? It, it's, it's affectionate. It's personal. We see that, right? But it's not just to Timothy, Right? All of this instruction and doctrine that Paul is giving isn't simply for Timothy's sake. Timothy's been with Paul for a long time now. Right? He, he knows these things. It, it's the church. It's these leaders at Ephesus that need this instruction. And it's us in Orangeburg at Trinity Church, by extension, that need this instruction as well. So, so it's personal, it's affectionate for Timothy, it's also apostolic and prophetic for the church at Ephesus and, and even for us as well. All right, so there's a little bit about your background. We've got Paul, we've got Timothy, uh, we've got the situation at Ephesus. We'll, we'll deal more with the false teaching next week. Let me mention a few things now about our Savior. Because something struck me this week as I was studying through this and, and reflecting on these verses, think for a moment about how you normally address God or, or, or see or hear God addressed in Scripture. How is He described? Think about that for a second. And, and think about how we talk about our Savior and who our Savior is. Because one of the most common ways, I think, to refer to God, especially with the New Testament writers, is we talk about God as being our Father. Right? Probably the most common way that it's addressed, and even in verse 2 in our text this morning, right? grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. Right? So that just kind of naturally goes uh, together. And when we're normally talking about who our Savior is, we're talking usually about Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. But in this letter to Timothy, Paul asserts that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. So that's normal. Okay? 
by the command of God our Savior, which is a little unusual, right? Uh, An apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior. So God is our Savior. And of course we know this to be true, and it's not problematic for us because we know that God exists in three persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that that these three together have worked to accomplish our salvation. Oftentimes it's talked about in terms of the Father planning it and the Son purchasing it or accomplishing it and the Spirit applying it. So we know that they work in concert together to bring it about. But I want you to understand what's being emphasized here this morning in this letter, especially if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower. Right? You've likely got some concept of who God is in your mind, and it might be anywhere on the spectrum. It might be on the one end from God is angry and he's grumpy and he's uh, this cosmic killjoy just making sure we don't have too much fun. Right? Or it might be all the way on the other end of the spectrum. It's maybe, well, God's just, you know, this semi-senile, benevolent old man. Maybe like your grandfather, right? Let's be honest, maybe just like Santa Claus, right? He is the rewarder of good little boys and girls. And so if we, if we keep our noses clean, we should be able to expect good things from God, right? So, so I don't know where you might be on that spectrum, maybe somewhere in between. But here's what you need to know and understand about our God, is that He is our Savior. That part of His very nature And character is a desire to rescue and redeem and restore and save. And he is, in fact, so determined to see that desire come to fruition that he commanded that there be apostles. He commanded that Paul be an apostle, you see in verse 1. He wasn't asking for volunteers. He wasn't suggesting that there be apostles. He commanded it to happen just like he commanded that there be planets and stars. And so God is our Savior. He is seeking and saving the lost. And he's gone to great lengths to guarantee that that happens. And very closely tied to this and related is that because God is our Savior, Jesus is our hope. Right? At the, at the end of verse 1. It doesn't say that He brings us hope. It doesn't say that He offers hope. It says that He is our hope. His very person. Who He is. What He's done. What He's accomplished. He is our hope because God is one who seeks and saves. Christ Jesus is one who surrendered himself up, who gave himself up in our place that he might be sacrificed, that his death might be the payment for our sin and rebellion. And so this is the good news of the gospel. This is ultimately what this letter is about. 
And this is where I want to finish this morning talking just a little bit about the gospel. If you ever opened up a letter, or I guess these days it's, have you ever started reading an email? And it starts, Dear John Mark, I hope this letter finds you doing well. I just cringe every time somebody writes that and I read it. I'm just like, ugh. Right? And the only thing that makes me cringe worse is when I catch myself doing it. Right? I'm writing somebody. I hope this letter finds, oh, I did it. You know? And I cringe because I know I'm, I'm throwing that in there because I haven't written this person forever, if at all. And I'm only writing them now because I need something. And it's just kind of nervous, awkward filler before I get to what I want to ask for. Right? So I hope this letter finds you doing well. Ugh. I was wondering maybe, and I've often wondered, maybe that's what Paul was doing at the beginning of his letters. Because they all sound kind of similar. Quite frankly, not very original. He kind of repeats the same thing over and and over again. So is it that, that Paul doesn't know what to say? Is he, you know, he's about to address some tough stuff here. Is this maybe some awkward and nervous filler before he gets to the rebuke about the false teaching that he would start with this, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus, I'm writing to you grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Because, I mean, really look at, I think he wrote 13 letters, look at the beginning of all of them, they all sound very, very similar. And so is this filler, is this because he doesn't have anything better to say, or is this because He's Paul, and he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not, in fact, filler that he begins with, but it is the gospel. It it is the heart and the content of the very thing that he has to offer, the only thing that he has to offer again and again and again for the church, for her leaders. Look, at, look with me at verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, if the, if the good news of the gospel were a box and you opened up this box and you started to to pull its contents out, right? These three, grace, mercy, and peace, would be among the first things that you pull out of the box. It's the very heart of the gospel. And I wish that I had lots of time to say lots of things about each of these three, but let me just give you a quick sentence or two uh, about each, and we'll, we'll throw these up on the screen for you. First, let's start with grace. Paul is offering to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus grace. And so when we think about grace, we often think about, and folks often use the phrase, unmerited favor. Okay? Uh, getting something good that you didn't deserve. And that's helpful. But, you know, when it comes to the gospel, it's only half true to say that it is unmerited favor is only half true. It, it might not have been merited by you, but it was earned by somebody on your behalf. And so, 
Y'all, I'm normally highly allergic to cute little acronyms and pithy little cliches and things like that. But y'all, for grace, it's hard to get around this acronym of God's riches at Christ's expense. Because that's really what grace is in the gospel, right? Because somebody had to pay for it. It was not free or cheap. It's just free to you and me. And so that's part of this gospel that Paul's extending to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus and to us today. It's a gracious gospel. It is glorious riches to us that we have not earned or deserved or merited but that Christ did in our place. So there's, there's uh, you can use grace. I give you permission to use God's riches at Christ's expense. Please don't use uh, basic instructions before leaving earth or any of those other things. Those are not on the approved list. I, I will break out in hives uh, for some of these others. All right, mercy. Um, if grace is getting something good that you don't deserve... Mercy is not getting something bad that you do deserve. And just like grace, right, somebody had to pay for it. It's not like the bad thing just poof, it just disappears and it didn't happen, right? But it is absorbed. It is taken on by our Lord Jesus He takes what we deserve, the death and the judgment that our sin and rebellion against God have earned for us. He absorbs, he he takes upon himself as our substitute. And so that's mercy. And so the result of grace and mercy in the gospel is peace. It's not this subjective emotion or feeling But it's an objective reality. Scripture tells us that because of our sin and our rebellion, our natural state, our natural relationship with God is one of enemies. Right? We are not, the the popular culture would have you to believe, we are not all naturally God's children. Right? We are naturally His enemies. Until the work of the gospel comes and makes us sons and daughters through adoption and gives us, instead of enmity, gives us a a peace that we stand before a holy and righteous God and we are no longer at war with Him, but there is now peace. Paul Paul beautifully explains this peace in in Colossians uh, 1.20 when he's speaking of Christ reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So far from being filler, far from Paul not quite knowing how to get into this thing before he jumps on this false teaching, uh, Paul's extending this precious gospel to all who hear. And it's the very thing and, in fact, the only thing that he has to extend. Right? Think about Paul. He spent a ton of time at Ephesus. He's invested quite a bit with these folks. And now to see them deserting the gospel and embracing false teaching must be very alarming and concerning for him. So what's he going to extend to them? Grace 
and mercy and peace? What does, what does Timothy need to embolden him and to give him hope and, and courage? Well, he needs grace and mercy and peace. What do these Ephesians need that have jettisoned the gospel and have started embracing false teaching? They need grace and mercy and peace. What do we need? Grace and mercy and peace. What do we find at the table this morning? Right? Uh, we find uh, a remembrance of grace and mercy and peace. And if we come with, with expectant and believing hearts, we find actual grace here. We find the spiritual, the real spiritual presence of our Lord and Savior this morning in this sacrament. Um, and so it, it's not just filler. This isn't just filler. It's not like we needed to make the service last five minutes longer and that's why we're doing this. There's real grace here. There's real help for you and for me. Let's pray together as we approach the table. Father, we thank you.